We have a lengthy passage here, so let's get started. From the book of Acts, we have Luke, Dr. Luke, his accounts of Paul's conversion. Acts chapter 9. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice of hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by hand and brought him into Damascus. And three days and for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen a vision, a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus has appeared to you on the road by which you had came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell off his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues saying, he is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is not this Man, the, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, 
and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. But they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Bless the reading of the word. Please be seated. Thank you. Okay, well, good morning, everyone. It was, uh, we had a great time uh, at the retreat last weekend, and um, there was about, I think, uh, 75 of us there, and we heard some great messages on gospel-centered community, uh, actually practice that and exercise what it means to be in fellowship with one another uh, because of Christ, and um, so very thankful, yeah. but I miss being here and worshiping together with uh, the rest of you as well, and so um, I'm, I'm glad for just this chance that we can uh, reconvene as the body of Jesus and just worship the Lord together. Uh, as we go into this passage, I'm going to just ask you to uh, please join me in the word of prayer. And uh, uh, we, we, we always pray, but uh, we're going to ask the Lord to open up our eyes and our hearts uh, by his spirit to his word and to respond. So please join me in that word of prayer. Father, we are thankful for uh, your word that's given to us. It's a double-edged sword, and uh, as such, it does pierce as far as um, uh, joint and marrow, soul and spirit, and it judges uh, our hearts, and we want to come in submission to your word uh, to live under it. Uh, Lord, there are things in your word that uh, will challenge us and that will even... uh, Uh, bring us out of our comfort zone in many ways. And it convicts us of our sin. It convicts us of our need for you. Um, It brings comfort and encouragement. And uh, Lord, we ask that you would, by your spirit, take your word now and apply it to our hearts. And uh, help us not to merely be hearers of your word, but to be doers, to submit ourselves to it. Um, and to consider how our lives might have to change in accordance to it. And so I ask for your grace right now, uh, by your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, The book of Acts that we've been going through for the past several weeks is a uh, tremendous book. And uh, one man that I know um, actually reads through Acts 12 times a year. So all 20 chapters, about 12 times a year, uh, along, of course, with other uh, chapters of the Bible. And uh, the reason why he reads through uh, Acts so much is because uh, he feels that we need constant reminder of what's in the content of this book. Uh, We so easily forget, and uh, we need to be challenged by the purpose and the mission that we find in the book of Acts. And so... um, so I hope that as we're going through this book, that it is uh, shaping us, it's changing us, it's challenging us in many, many levels. Uh, this chapter that we just read in Acts chapter 9 is the story of Saul. And uh, Saul is a very famous, whoa, hello, okay, a uh, very famous guy, whoa. 
It's the Holy Spirit, okay, coming in powerful ways. All right. Is it? Okay, it's, it's actually on now. Oh, I thought it was on already. Okay, I, again, I just, I think my voice is loud to me. All right. Um, where was I? <laughs> All right. Um, yeah, the story of Saul, right? We're just talking about that. Uh, so, yeah, Saul is a very famous uh, figure in the Bible, as we know. And uh, later on, this man uh, becomes Apostle Paul. And he writes about half the books of the New Testament. And so this story is particularly uh, relevant. Um, we want to know how is it that this man, who became one of the chief persecutors of the church, all of a sudden becomes very powerfully used by God. Now, I think the temptation when we read the story of Saul is to think, well, that's Saul. But that's not me. I'm just an ordinary Christian. Um, Saul, you know, he's this type A, zealous kind of guy, and he's driven. But, you know, how about the rest of us? And I want to debunk that as much as possible uh, through this story. And I want to show you that the story of Saul is actually the story of us as well in many ways. Our stories are all different. But I want to show you um, through this morning, um, heading into afternoon, that the same things that happened in Saul's life are the same things that actually should be happening in our life as well. And so I've entitled this message, The Marks of Genuine Conversion. Uh, the Marks of Genuine Conversion. Many times, I think in church, uh, we are lulled, I would say. And sometimes we're lulled because we have maybe gone through the motions of Christianity. And we've gone through the motions of going to church, uh, motions of worship, prayer, these kind of things. And yet, somehow, we're kind of missing maybe the heartbeat, the very engine of our faith. And we're missing the heart of the gospel itself. And in this story of Saul, I want to show us that there are certain things that really should mark the life, uh, the ongoing characteristics, in a way, of a vital relationship with Jesus— but also, too, what really marks a genuine, genuine faith in Christ. So we're going to look at this. Uh, you know, I'm going to go through, zip through this, about five of these characteristics here. But Acts chapter 9 basically picks up um, at the end of Acts chapter 7. It's interrupted in Acts chapter 8 by the story of Philip, um, the evangelist, and the Ethiopian eunuch. Uh, but at the end of Acts chapter 7, which I preached on a few weeks ago, we came to the story of the first martyr of the Christian faith, Stephen. And as Stephen was being martyred, um, the Bible says that all the people were laying their garments at the feet of this young man named Saul. And that day began to wave a great persecution against the church. Saul was basically the ringleader. He's the only one who's mentioned by name, but he's a ringleader of this great massive persecution that happens against the church. And Saul, as we read in Acts 9, uh, he is completely, um, he is bloodthirsty, and he is bent on pursuing um, believers, Christians, followers of the way, and he secures an extradition order from the high priests of Israel to search and capture 
and to bring Christians back to Jerusalem. But he is filled with murder, uh, the Bible talks about. And then we find this dramatic story that takes place. And again, I want to show you that uh, even though Saul's story is unique, that in many ways there should be some common things that should be true of our story as well. So five elements of genuine conversion in Acts chapter 9. Five elements. Uh, I'm going to begin with verse 1 here, but conversion, I want you to see, is completely dependent on God's initiative and grace in our lives. It's completely dependent on the work of God, His mercy, um, initiating itself in our life. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now here we find that Saul was completely bent on his purpose. He thought that he was actually serving God. And he thought that he was doing the right thing. Um, but he was completely blinded, right, to his own heart and to his sin. He, he, he could not see it. And Saul is not seeking the Lord. But what we find here is that Jesus himself is seeking Saul. And he's the one who comes and seeks the lost. This is what Jesus does. And as Saul is on his way, he stops Saul right in his tracks. You know, what, Saul, what, why are you persecuting me? And Saul, you know, didn't realize that in persecuting the church, he was actually persecuting Jesus himself. And I want you to see that um, long before that you and I have ever sought Jesus, long, long before that, Jesus has already been seeking you. He's already been doing this work in your heart. And apart from God's work to draw you to himself, we would not seek him. We would not even want to know who Christ really is. And uh, Saul has this profound understanding of this where he then begins to write about this in the New Testament uh, all throughout, but this idea describing God's grace, his mercy in your life, his complete mercy. Now, sometimes we think of this, and we think, this is abstract, this is disconnected, but this is very, very important. This is why prayer is so, so important. Um, and it, this is why our confidence and our trust is in the Lord to do the work, to do it all. Um, prayer is a means by which we actively and conscientiously are depending upon Christ to do the work that only he can do. To do the impossible work of removing blinders, of saving. And I want to challenge you, um, whether you're a student, you're a parent, work, whatever you, whatever you find yourself, uh, we all have desires, right, to see people around us come to know Christ. But how much are we praying and actively asking the Lord to open their eyes to who he is? 
depending upon the Lord Jesus to say, Lord, uh, unless you initiate this work in this person's heart, there's just no way that they're going to even seek you, right? Um, how much sometimes that we get frustrated or we feel like, oh, you know, they're not coming to know the Lord or um, I'm trying really hard or whatever it is. And, and yet I want to just really encourage all of us, are we weak enough to depend upon the Lord in prayer, as Hudson Taylor would say? Um, when we work, we work, but when we pray, God works. And one thing that I was sharing this Friday night at R&B, right, is how do you know, do you guys remember? <laughs> well, okay. Well, how do you guys know where your faith is at? We say that we have faith, but how do you know? Look at how much you pray. How much you pray is a pretty good, strong indicator, not your theology of prayer, but how much you actually pray is a very, very good indicator of how much you actually depend upon Jesus. If salvation is a work that God must initiate, if this is something that God must do, then prayer is a way that we're going to really see God actively working. Um, and you know what? There's a great freedom in that. There really is. Because... Um, one of the things I, I just remember, you know, especially when we're in China, is our team, you know, we would gather together on a weekly basis. Uh, but the reason why we gathered together weekly was just simply because we just realized our desperation for the Lord. Like we just needed to constantly pray. And we knew that um, the vision that God had laid on our hearts, this would be utterly impossible without just coming before the Lord on our knees. And I, I remember those meetings, but um, physically we would lit, literally get on our knees. And we would say, Father in heaven, uh, please help us establish your work for your glory. But this was just a physical sign of us to say, Lord, we, we really desperately need you. And uh, it's act, this active trust in, in the Lord to do the work. And then... This is very liberating because when you share your faith with people around you, you realize that you could be very imperfect. You could stumble around in your words. You could kind of flail around. You don't get all the words right, but that's okay because our trust is not in our ability to communicate well. Our trust is in the Lord who does the saving. That's where we're trusting. That's whom we're trusting. I, uh, when I was uh, in San Jose, uh, a few months ago, I shared with you guys um, that weekend that my, one of my good friends, he, he, just, uh, he passed away this year, uh, you know, still relatively young, uh, you know, 46 years old, and he died. And when I was at the funeral um, there, service, one of the encouragements there was this uh, young man, I, I had forgotten about him, who was in the church, and his name is Keo. And Keo came up to me, and he said, you know, Pastor David, Pastor David, it's good, so good to see you. I go, I had to think about it for a second, like, who this person was. I was a little embarrassed, like, oh, uh, good to see you too, if I say that. <laughs> okay, but yeah, good to see you too. And then it came back, Keo, right? He goes, yes. Um, and then he introduced me to his wife. And Pastor David, I want you to meet my wife, and da-da-da-da. And then he, 
he uh, reminded me, and, and again, I just forgot about this, but he reminded me of, Pastor Dave, do you remember you're the one who um, shared the gospel with me, and I, I received Christ, and then it came back to me, that's right. Um, and then he went on to describe how I shared the gospel. You know what I did? Um, some of you guys are familiar with this, but I used something called the bridge illustration from Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And I literally drew out this bridge, right? And, and he received Christ. And you know what his wife said? It was really funny. She said, you mean you actually, like, you actually believe, like, you actually, like, believed in that bridge illustration? Isn't that funny? <laughs> Do you get, I mean, like, like, she was basically saying, I can't believe that that worked. Because it seems so canned, right? All right, anyway. Um, I thought it was funny. Well, okay. So, yeah, what I'm saying, though, is, yeah, like, it was canned. As I think about it, I'm thinking, wow, that was really artificial. <laughs> and he put his trust. But that's okay because our trust, our confidence is in the Lord, right? Our, our sharing could be very imperfect is what I'm saying. It could be very, very artificial in certain ways. But it's the Lord Jesus who does the saving work. And here in Saul's life, I want, you, I want to encourage you that you never know that as you take that initiative and you kind of flail about sometimes, you never know what God does. Put your confidence in the Lord. Um, he's the one who does the initiating work. He's the one who saves. And you never know who comes to Christ. It would be a surprise. Billy Graham says this. He says, when I get to heaven, there will be th three surprises. First is the people that I thought would be here are not. Second is that the people I did not expect to be here will be there. And then finally, he said, the third surprise is that I will be there. That I will be there. And then when you look at the sovereignty of God, this amazing grace that he has done in you, you and I, our life, uh, we should never be utterly amazed that God would save sinners like us. If this gospel is old news, if, if we feel like, oh, just this doesn't electrify my heart, then it's because we've lost the wonder that God in his grace would reach down to save sinners like us. And I would implore you to go deeper in the gospel. Um, well, secondly, is this, that genuine conversion to Christ involves repentance and surrender, not mere sincerity of belief. It involves repentance and surrender of your life to Christ, not mere sincerity of belief. I want you to see the dynamics of genuine conversion here in verse 3 to verse 8. Luke writes, Now as he w went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? 
And he said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting, but rise and enter the city and you'll be told what you're to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by hand and brought him into Damascus. Now, one thing I want, to sh- I want you to see in this passage is not simply Saul's conversion to Christ, but I want you to see... Um, how he gets converted, I want the, even the physical imagery in this passage. The physical imagery here of Saul's blindness is really pointing to the spiritual reality of our blindness as well. The Bible frequently describes sin as darkness to speak of our sinful condition before God. We are darkened in our spiritual understanding of who God is. We are darkened by sin itself. And because of the darkness of sin, Jesus, or God, shines his light from heaven around Saul. And this light that is shining around him is really a picture of Christ and the gospel shining its light into Saul's heart and mind. Um, I was... Reminded in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, where Paul describes our condition in this way. But he says, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, with ourselves as yourselves, for, as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown it in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But this is the condition of our heart apart from Jesus' grace in our life. And Jesus, the way he blinds Saul... Right, Saul thought that he had seen. Saul thought that the path that he was going on was the light. But Jesus blinds him to show him that in reality he was blind. And that's why when Jesus heals the blind man in John chapter 9, the blind man's response was simply, whereas I was blind, now I see. When you encounter Christ, you see truth and reality the truth of sin, the truth of God's judgment, the truth of the cross, the truth of God's mercy and grace. And salvation is a complete reversal of blindness and darkness into genuine repentance and surrender to Christ. Now, this is what salvation involves, conversion involves. And I will say that sincerity of belief is not what saves you. Um, you could be very sincere in faith, but sincerity does not save you. You could sincerely put your faith in the wrong thing. Sincerity never saves people. It's only Christ. And once you see Christ, once you put your trust in Him, there is a genuine surrender of life. Um, this is, this is what we find here. And I, I want to show you a few things, right? First of all, what does this repentance look like? Well, it looks like obedience. Look at verse 5. He said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city, and he will be told what you're to do. 
And in verse 8, we find that Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. But the, the fact is that Saul just immediately obeyed Jesus. And he's, he calls him Lord as well. But there's this immediate obedience to Christ himself. That is one of the true markers of repentance, of genuine faith in Christ. Um, is this life now where it's submitted to Christ in obedience. But we also find that Saul became very dependent. Um, Saul, notice that in his blindness, he had to be led by others into Damascus. Right? He was completely, whereas before, Saul was self-sufficient, self-reliant, self-independent. He was like the self-made, successful kind of guy. Um, now he's utterly humbled, and he is dependent upon Jesus, and he's dependent upon others. He's, have you, you know, when I was at Biola uh, last weekend, you know, I saw this man, right, and he's walking around with his um, cane, right, just kind of, you know, like that, right, because he's blind, and he, you know, if you look, right, he, he has to walk very deliberately, very carefully, uh, every step is very, uh, you, you know, it's, it's kind of a symbol of his weakness in a way, of his, of his um, physical weakness. And he's dependent. But this blindness is a symbol of our dependence, our utter dependence upon Jesus. And this is on purpose because Saul was so self-reliant. Now, Saul is not... Um, you know, when we think of sin, we think of the bad guys. You know, the drug dealers, the gangbangers, or whatever. But that's not what sin is. Sin is self-dependence. It's self-reliance. It's independence from God. If you were to look at Saul, he would be the kind of guy that actually most Asians would really admire. He would be the straight-A student, the type A who probably got into Stanford or Yale, went out to med school or law school, right? Made good money, was very successful. He would have been the one person that every Asian parent would have paid thousands of dollars to tutor their child in the SAT in college prep class, right? This is Saul. Uh, this is who he was. And he was very, very self-made. But the Lord has to say, Saul, you're going to be humbled and dependent. Saul went full of determination and self-confidence to Damascus, but he went there utterly dependent. Now, what does this mean? Okay. In Christianity, in our faith, a lot of times we rely upon our emotionalism. Right? We um, get these, you know, we, we, we get this experience, we get this spiritual high sometimes, and we kind of rely upon that. Um, but what genuine repentance is, is not emotionalism. Genuine repentance is a choice of surrender. And it's a choice in which you are saying, Lord, um, I submit myself to you conscientiously day after day every single day C.S. Lewis 
who is one of the most influential Christian writers of the last century. And it took him many years of wrestling with Christianity before he came to Christ. But in his own words, C.S. Lewis became one of the most reluctant uh, Christians in the last century. Let me read uh, what he writes. He says, I became aware that I was holding something at bay or shutting something out. Or if you like, that I was wearing some stiff clothing like corslets or even a suit of armors as if I were a lobster. I felt myself being there and then given a free choice. I could open the door or keep it shut. I could unbuckle the armor or keep it on. Neither choice was presented as a duty. No, no threat or promise was attached to either. Though I knew that to open the door or to, to take off the corslet meant the incalculable. I was moved by no desires or fears. In a sense, I was not moved by anything. In other words, emotionally, there is no spiritual high. He simply says, I chose to open, to unbuckle, to loosen the rein. What C.S. Lewis is saying is in response to Christ, the truth, the reality of who he is, even though he kind of was reluctant and he grappled with it and in a sense his emotions were not particularly thrilled, he could not deny that Jesus is Lord. And he made a choice to say, I'm going to open, unbuckle, I surrender to you. Take hold of my life, my heart now. And the rest is history. Became one of the most influential writers, of a lot, Christian writers of the last century. And this is what repentance is. But this happens on a day-by-day basis. In Saul's conversion, his story is unique, but every genuine conversion to Christ is the same in a surrendering, a relinquishing of your life. I don't know what this is going to involve. I don't know where this is going to lead. But Lord, you take hold of my life. I give my plans to you. I had ABC, which would lead to D or Z for my life. But I relinquish this to you. I don't want to take control of my life anymore. Lord, you must take control. I surrender to you. And it's not about my dreams or my parents' dreams or the Asian-American dream. It's about what you want. This is genuine conversion. This is faith in Christ. This is true for every believer, genuine believer in Christ. And until we've come to that point in our heart, we may not have experienced genuine conversion yet. But this would be the response to the gospel, the only appropriate response in light of what Christ has done. This is what it involves. But third is verse 9, genuine conversion results in new affections for God. New affections. Oh my goodness, it's 12:19. All right, I have three more points. Um, okay, Lord. Well, Let's skip to number four. (laughs) Oh, man. 
Okay. We have communion. All right. Number four, genuine salvation results in a new relationship to the church. Okay, I can't read this. It's going to take too long. We've already read it, right? So you already know the story. Uh, But what I want to say is this, uh, through this passage, I want you to see this as well. How many believers are involved in Saul's life at this point, right? After his life is surrendered to Christ, how many believers do you see? Now, I want you to see something that the Lord could have directly healed Saul, right? He, he has the power to do that, and we, we find that he does do that sometimes in the Gospels. He could have said, okay, Saul, uh, I blinded you. Go um, to Damascus, and I'll open your eyes. But he doesn't do that. He calls a man named Ananias. Ananias, I want you to go to Saul. I want you to pray for him. And then after Ananias prays for Saul, uh, we find that, you know, Saul's preaching, and then he has to be protected by, it says, the disciples from threat to his life. After that, he goes, and then um, there's a man named Barnabas that we are introduced to in the story. And Barnabas has to be the one to say, okay, I can vouch for Saul. You know, he's, he's a good guy. We can trust him, right? And he gets him connected with the other disciples. But one thing I want you to see throughout this narrative or throughout this story is that God uses a variety of people in Saul's life. Saul is not a lone ranger anymore, okay? He's not there to say, I'm a self-independent Christian. I can do this. No, Saul is utterly, profoundly dependent on the Lord and other believers. And this means that he has a new relationship to the church. When Ananias prays for Saul, the way that Ananias addresses Saul, he says, Brother Saul, welcome to the family, right? This is a, this is a very, a term of endearment. Um, this is, you're welcome, right? And this is what's going on. And what I want to say about that is this. True conversion always goes hand in hand with active church membership, with active church membership. I'm not talking about the formality of membership, like I've signed my name on a piece of document. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a genuine, genuine, meaningful dependence, interdependence with other believers in the body of Christ, where you are not isolated, alienated, or you are not disconnected. I'm talking about um, holding one another accountable, knowing, being known to the point where you actually can share your heart with people in this body, not, I'm not talking about, you know, other Bible studies outside of this, our church, but I'm talking about within our church here, where you are being known. And that's why, um, you know, we talked about the retreat this past weekend, the difference between formative community versus functional community. Tony Giles talked about that, right? But uh, at the retreat, we were talking about gospel-centered community. Um, functional community is where you look at the church and you say, okay, I choose this Bible study, this program, this, uh, I like these songs that we sang. I, I didn't like that sermon that he just preached. <laughs> you, know, you know, we, we kind of choose what we like and don't like. That's called functional community. In other words, it's what's in it for me. Uh, how is it meeting my needs? And centered on, guess who? You. But formative community that's truly centered on Jesus says, I am going to be obedient to the word of God, and I'm going to plunge myself into the body of Jesus. And there are some things I'm not going to like. In fact, I'm going to dislike it very much. Why? It's going to grate against my flesh. But when it grates against my flesh, I think God is exposing something that I probably need to repent of. 
and there's probably areas of my heart and life that I realize I'm not being very loving or I'm not being very, uh, uh, whatever it is, right? I, but that's functional, or that's, uh, that's formative community, looking at the body of Christ in that way. And what I want you to see is that um, even in this passage, that genuine conversion to Christ always involves not only conversion to Christ himself, but you are now vitally connected to what Jesus loves the most, which is the church. He gave himself for the church. And this is formative community. This is gospel community. Um, okay. Well, be, because the Cantonese service let out late, I'm going to make this excuse and say we can let out a little bit late. <laughs> anyway. Okay, well, Pastor Yang's not here, right? Okay. Um, anyway. Um, yeah, and the last thing I want you to see, just simply, and I, I won't talk too long about this, but genuine conversion results in new mission and zeal. New mission and zeal. So, um, again, really quickly, what you find with Saul is that he immediately goes around preaching Christ. He didn't have seminary training background. He didn't take a class on evangelism or apologetics. He didn't, you know, have all these Bible studies, you know, stored up in his mind. So now he could go, he just went zealously at threat to his own life. Now, one thing I just want to say about that really quickly is this. If we are, if we really believe this gospel message, wouldn't we want to share it like zealously? If we had the cure to cancer, wouldn't we want to tell the world about it? But if this gospel is so real to us, this joy, and we know that it's the true salvation, hope of the world, like, what would stop us, what would keep us from sharing it with everyone around us, even that threat, even that great risk to ourselves? How, when's the last time that you took a genuine risk to share the gospel? I'm talking about a risk, like where, you know, it, it, it was costly. Maybe a relationship, maybe your reputation, whatever it is, but when, when's the last time? Like, this, like, in other words, your comfort level was just, this is way beyond your comfort. That's what I'm talking about. I tell you that every single time when I'm going out to ELAC or wherever, it's, you know, I'm a little bit nervous. I have no idea. And it's, I don't know what people are going to say. And I, I will tell you, I'm a little afraid. Um, but, you know, I do this because I sincerely believe that this message of the gospel is life-changing news. It's the hope of the world. And we, this, you know, we have to make this a priority of our heart. Um, and we have to love Jesus more than the approval of people to be able to share our faith. So anyway, um, I want us to just come before the Lord and Paul's passion, joy, and mission all sprang from this one truth. And this one simple truth in 1 Timothy 1.15, where he writes, This is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as a foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience is an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul lived for God's glory because he saw his extreme sin 
but he saw the extreme mercy of God. And when we can say that this is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save me, a sinner, one of the more, you know, the, the foremost. And we see God's mercy in us through the cross of Jesus, through his death, that on his body he bore our sins on the cross, on that tree. And he took the punishment that we deserve. Um, this will cause us to spring into new mission and passion and joy and to live for God's glory. If you don't know Christ, would you receive him? Would you put your faith in Christ? And in that faith that involves repentance and surrender, would you give your life to Jesus? Not as an emotional appeal, but in response to Christ. And to say, Lord, my life belongs to you. And if you're a believer, uh, would you come? And the areas that we fall short, would you ask for forgiveness? But asking for forgiveness, when, whenever we ask for forgiveness from the Lord, we're not just saying, Lord, forgive me, I fall short. That's not true f- confession. Asking for forgiveness doesn't just mean I keep doing wrong, and I just want God to forgive my continual wrong. Asking for forgiveness involves repentance. It's a confession of wrong, but it's also a confession to say, Lord, change me. Help me. I don't want to be stuck. I want to be obedient. I want to live a life that is surrendered and different. That's genuine confession of sin. So we don't cheapen God's grace and say, grace for, but rather we say, yes, grace for sinners like me who do fall short, but grace also to change me, to become more like Christ, to be submissive. And we invite you, if this is where your heart is at, to come and participate in this Lord's table. That if you are a disciple of Jesus, whose life is repentant, and um, you want your life to be submitted to the Word of God, please come. But if that's not where you're at right now, please refrain. Please refrain. And um, and I want to invite you now to just come and partake.